this is the work of the evil one. And so we see here that Yahweh is certainly his justice, but also his mercy in listening to David and, and ending it, not just anywhere, but it turns out, as Chronicles tells us, on the spot, you know, where Solomon will build the temple, which is also where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. And so it's just kind of like this, what? <laughs> you know, this very momentous, very portentous threshing floor uh, where Yahweh hears his people, you know, mm -hmm. in mercy and grace and, and offers forgiveness and healing. And so that's all very significant. Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast that goes along with our chronological reading plan, where we discuss the passages we're going to be reading in the next week and any questions that have been sent in or presented to us. Um, unfortunately, once again this week, we did not have any questions, but we think that's likely because the readings are pretty straightforward. There are some big picture things that are important for us to talk about, but they may not be generating curiosities in the same way that perhaps Leviticus, for example, did. I imagine that as we move into Psalms and Proverbs and then especially the prophets, some of that will be changing. But if you have questions, please let us know. We want to hear from you. So next week, we are finishing uh, with Samuel and starting into the first couple of chapters of Kings and also finishing out First Chronicles, uh, which tell the story of, of the end of David's reign and just some of the things that he did and some of the songs that he wrote uh, just as he neared the end of his life. Uh, we also get the account of, I guess, what we could call perhaps David's final failure uh, or David's final act of disobedience, which was the census. Uh, which is retold in both Samuel and Chronicles uh, with some significant differences, uh, which uh, we can get into if, if we're interested in kind of talking through that. And then we also see the succession of King Solomon uh, occur, which is also told f significantly differently between Chronicles and Kings. Uh, in Chronicles, it's seems pretty straightforward and and uh and it's more chronicles spends much more time lingering on david's dreams and plans for the temple whereas samuel kings is much more focused on the political intrigue of uh, samuel or solomon's older brother ahijah or abijah adonijah adonijah yeah there you go <laughs> And uh, just some of the maneuvering that uh, Queen Bathsheba had to do to make sure that her son Solomon became king, uh, which is, of course, what wound up happening. And uh, we also have a couple psalms thrown in, or quite a few psalms, actually, I think that are, since they're not really uh, ascribed to any particular point in David's life, the reading plan has just included them here at the end. And certainly, I think, worthwhile to kind of read through as, as a summary, kind of summary or a conclusion to David's life. So those are next week's readings. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Um, I do have a couple of questions. So in 2 Samuel 21, we get this story about how the Gibeonites were mistreated by Saul, which is a story that's not actually told in the scriptures. But Saul was supposed to spare them. And we do know that from earlier on in Joshua. And apparently did not. And so there's trouble coming to Israel because of that. And David, when he inquires into the Lord about why they're having trouble, is told because of what happened to the Gibeonites. And then there's this whole thing where David goes through making atonement. And I just wondered if you would speak a little bit about, one, the atonement that's made seems kind of awful, right? He turns seven people over to them to be put to death in a, a terrible way. But then also, 
it's it's odd to us, I think, as modern day readers to have David making atonement or God's people making atonement for mistakes that they're not the ones who made, right? The previous generation are the ones who made them. I'd just love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I think it's I think a big thing to to just keep in mind here is that the word atonement uh, does not necessarily mean like expiation or propitiation for sin. Uh, the English word, at least, literally is a portmanteau invented by William Tyndale that means at one meant. I mean, I know that sounds dumb, but that's the that's reality. Like that's where the word atonement comes from, and so it can mean you know, what we usually mean by kind of making things right with God through some kind of a sacrifice. That's not necessarily what's happening with David and the Gibeonites. Uh, That may be part of it. I think obviously Yahweh does not accept human sacrifices, so this is not sacrificial in that way. I think the Joshua aspect is an important part of the context that the Gibeonites were native Canaanites who ought to have been destroyed in the, the wars of conquest. But they tricked Joshua and the Israelite princes into thinking that they were from a far more distant land. And so they were, they were allowed covenantally to make peace with, with occupants of, of people who didn't live within Canaan. And so they did that. And then they found out that they were actually Canaanites. But yes. it was too late. They'd already promised to, to extend peace to them. And so kind of the, the uh, I don't know if compromise is quite the right word, but <laughs> the compromise that Joshua reached was that the Gibeonites would then basically be kind of a servant cast for the Israelite people, which again is, is you know, we read that and kind of wrinkle. I mean, the whole thing is uncomfortable, but I mean, it's okay. I guess it's good they're not killing them, but, you know, they're kind of consigned to, to manual labor and to be part, you know, kind of in some ways, in some ways kind of grafted in a little bit, you know, um, not in like the same way that like Rahab and her family were, that Rahab's a, a uh, ancestor of Jesus, but um, I'm sure there was probably some mixing, you know, with the Gibeonites since they survived. But I think all that all that to say is that they, they had a place, they had a kind of covenant protection, and so Saul somehow, yeah, and like you said, it's not, we're not really given a lot of details, it's not really figured in the story, but that Saul broke his covenant with the Gibeonites broke the people's covenant with the Gibeonites. And so I think that what David is doing is is an at one mint or an effort at at one mint meaning how do we make this whole? Like how do we rectify what we've done kind of in breach of covenant? And so, yeah, he he turns over Saul's some of Saul's family members to to them to do with them what they will. And so then they do that. And then David then has to rectify that, <laughs> you know, situation because they leave their bones exposed, which is dishonoring and I think in kind of the old this ancient ancient paradigm that if you're not buried properly then you are cut off from kind of the yeah proper existence of the dead and we've we've touched on that a few times I mean they and their conception you know Sheol the, the realm of the dead was under the ground which makes sense that's where we put dead people and so if you haven't put your dead people in the ground then they can't whatever that existence is like and I mean the Old Testament doesn't give us much details about that i mean earlier in genesis it'll often use the phrase you know like that that abraham or isaac died and were gathered to their fathers or were gathered to their people and so there's it's not a negative thing but anyway just all of that to say that it's it's a uh inhuman really it's an inhuman way to treat remains even if it's people who were who were uh executed to kind of enact justice or to, to rectify this this covenant breach 
Yeah. You know, I think in the big picture, we talked, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. I saw was no respecter of covenants. And so I think it makes sense that he did whatever he did to the Gibeonites. Whereas David takes covenants very seriously, not the marriage covenant between Bathsheba and Uriah, but, <laughs> uh, but he paid, he paid for that. He paid for that dearly. And he know, I mean, he repented of it. Like we talked about last week. And so I think that uh, this is David as kind of the defender or the protector of the covenant is, I think, what we can kind of take from this, take from the story. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me as I was reading it this time is I know that one of the, the common issues today in our, our culture as we kind of wrestle with the sins of America's past is whether or not later generations are obligated to pay for in some way the sins of previous generations and i think that there's a whole lot of difficulties with that of course and sometimes america has done that and sometimes america has not you know reparations were made to japanese families that were taken from their homes and and had their property seized in world war ii but there's other major sins even broken covenants in america's past that we have not made any kind of um, payment for and it's a pretty common argument about whether or not us today who did not do these things are guilty and liable to pay for the sins of the past. And one of the things that I think I see here in 2 Samuel 21 is at least it's not out of the question that that is something Yahweh would want us to do, is to pay for in some way, um, atone for in some way. Again, not necessarily with him, but with those that have been wronged. For the sins in our past. And, you know, I, and I think you see this in some of the sacrifices in Leviticus as well that involve like human to human, you know, theft or, or property destruction or whatever else that, yes, there's a sacrifice given to the Lord, but then you also then have to make your fellow whole. And like there's a horizontal element to that as well. And so I think that, yeah, I think we, we, there should at least be no argument <laughs> that, you know, our involvement in the new covenant certainly means reconciliation and adoption with the tri- the triune god mm-hmm. but it also means horizontal you know person to person but also community to community uh reconciliation and restoration as well which could include you know monetary reparations or something like that i mean mm-hmm. yeah like you said it's that's a big complicated lots of moving parts with that and you know america is not you know, we, we belong to America as citizens. We do not belong to America as, like, fellows in faith, you know. Because right. Not, not all, <laughs> the entity that is America is not a Christian thing. Uh-huh. It's, it's its own thing. Wait, really? Yes. And plenty of Christians belong to it, but plenty of other people who are not Christian also belong to it. You know, and I think it's at least worth thinking through, you know, how the interplay between, you know, the Christian community, the community of God's people... And then also, you know, kind of our belonging to other, not just a country, you know, but the companies we, mm-hmm. we are employed by, the family, the households that we belong to, you know, and just those different loyalties and allegiances. And then what obligations come upon us because of those alliances and allegiances, which are not bad. I mean, you have to belong. You know, it's a good thing, you know, that we belong to the, the things that we belong to, generally speaking, unless you're a member of a gang, that might be something you want to, you need to probably break off, you know, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, it's all of those things can be infected with evil, like, but hmm. the, 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 the belonging itself, you know, citizenship, family, all of that, you know, those things are not wrong or bad. They're, they're part of God's creation. 
Um, but I think as we, yeah, just as we reflect on how those different levels or those different communities have, have wronged one another or interacted, I think it's definitely worthwhile to, to consider what justice, what atonement uh, can look like. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how history is done differently in the ancient world than, than it is today. Yeah. And so when I look at the stories of the mighty men, for example, in, in second Samuel 23, but then there's a corollary in the, um, in Chronicles, one of the things that stands out to me is just like in judges, you know, we see these superhuman feats that are done. Huge numbers are discussed. Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to read those? I mean, do we read them literally or or do we see these as events that are not meant to be read with complete literalness? Are the feats of the mighty men and the uh, hundreds or thousands that they, they defeated um, literal things or is that doing something else? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, in some ways, I think the distinction may not matter like they can be literal and also, you know, be serving a narrative or a, or a theological purpose. I think it's always worth asking, like, what do you mean by literal? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, what you've said in the past was, if you had a time machine, we're able to go back and watch it. If a camera it. was there. If a camera was there, see? there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, uh, you know, and, and we've talked about this many times, and I think it's it's worth, yeah, I mean, it's worth continuing to talk about. It's just that... What cameras see is valuable information, it, but it is, it's just not the whole picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we, you know, and, and how many times as a society have we had to grapple with that, you know, in, in different situations where there's camera footage, but it does not tell you everything you need to know to understand what's happening. You That's know? true. Um, and, you know, so I think that, again, you know, the way that they did history, it's theological history, you know, and it, and it, it centers the meaning of events over the facts that doesn't mean that they're not reporting facts but just that you know there's one way to tell a story about a victory that's just this is what happened and then Mm -hmm. they fought people and then it was over it's like oh okay well that doesn't make me excited about anything (laughs) (laughs) then there's another way to talk about it that's like and they totally destroyed them and it was awesome (laughs) you know it's like well but when you say totally destroyed shut up (laughs) Shut up. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you mean molecularly annihilated? <laughs> shut up. I said shut up. <laughs> mm, yes. You know, and I think that, yeah. So I think it's just like, yeah, you know what? And I don't know if there were like specific feats that you were like, I don't think that happened. You know, but yeah, I, I think that we can, we can, we can take it as, you know, David's men were mighty and, and uh, that's real. And, you know, and these mm-hmm. things are, are relaying that to us and, um, and I, you know, and I think in some ways as a reflection on David, right? Like he's the leader of these, this kind of, uh, ancient Israelite Avengers. <laughs> you know I mean? Like he's captain. That is really what the feeling you get. He's captain Israelite, you know? And so, and so it's, it's a, it's a reflection. He's captain Israel. <laughs> I can do this all day. I can do this all day. You got more giants? <laughs> um, you know, and, and so I think that's kind of the spirit that we're, we're, uh, you know, and I think, again, and we've talked about this before, I mean, there's a lot that's not preserved, you know, and scripture is what it is, and God wants it to be that way, and so I'm not I'm not uh, arguing with any of that. But my suspicion is 
that each one of these guys or many of them had whole, you know, spinoff stories associated with yeah. them that we that are lost to history, you know, and that that a passage like this is really almost like a catalog. I mean, it is a catalog, mm-hmm. but that it's a especially with an oral culture. Right. You had you had kind of catalog stories that helped everyone remember and arrange like all these other stories, you know, that could be told. And it's like, oh man, I wish that those got written down too. But again, I mean, it's the Lord, you know, the Lord wants us to have what we have. And so I think that it's, it doesn't mean those other stories were bad. It means I do look forward to hearing them someday, you know, in, in the, in the world to come and just kind of getting that, getting some of the, the, uh, the side stories, but, um, yeah, and I think with numbers and and if are we going to talk about the census? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, then maybe we'll talk more about it there. But just to say that that numbers that numbers for the ancient Israelites conveyed meaning over fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'll say for now, and we can we can unpack that suitcase yeah. a bit more with the census, maybe. Wouldn't it be something to uncover a ancient scroll that told the story of Abishai, brother of Joab, son of Zeruah? You know, the chief of the thirty written down somewhere and that'd be it wouldn't be scripture but it would be it'd be pretty amazing to read yes yes i do wonder and i actually didn't look into this if any of these names are preserved archaeologically in any way anywhere that'd be interesting to find out yeah but there was a time like you said that all of these names would have been known and would have been deeply meaningful Mm -hmm. in the same way that a lot of the for example, founding fathers of our country, you know, the, their names are meaningful and evoke certain feelings and stories attached to them. You know, there was the, the, there's George Washington, the chief, but then there's all these other people around right. him that each have their own stories attached to them. And that's exactly what this would have been for them. Yeah. It's just sad that we don't have them. So you mentioned the census a moment ago. Uh-huh. We see this in 2 Samuel 24, and then we also see it. It has a corresponding passage in Chronicles. Um, but I'm curious, why is this a sin? Why is taking a census a sin? Because it's not just a sin. I mean, it's, uh, it's a big deal. And so I'm just curious why Yahweh is upset that David decided to count the fighting men. Well, you know, I think that uh, we know that censuses on their own are not bad because that's how numbers begins and ends. And so, uh, you know, I think that we can just take from that, that it's not saying that, you know, censuses as a census is wrong. You know, that, that can't be true because again, they take, they take them in numbers. And in fact, a little later in Chronicles, David will number all the Levites in the temple servants. And there's no, uh, there's no, divine eyebrow raises about that and so the the act of counting is not in itself bad and so i think that we can see in this and as i was reflecting on it and there's some details in the chronicles passage especially that made me more sure of of this idea is that i think david's motivations were where the sin lay um i think he didn't because joab resists it joab doesn't want to count the fighting men and you would think i mean joab is like you know, you know, in all the like the disastrous sci-fi movies where the president's like, "What should we do?" and then there's that one bald general that's like, "Drop the nukes." <laughs> <laughs> Joab is actually my next question for you. Joab so. is that bald general, you know, in the corner that's like, 
Hmm. You're not sure if he's a good guy the or a bad guy. The Philistines are attacking. What should we do? <laughs> Kill him! <laughs> hmm, yes. Shoot first, ask questions later. I mean, that just seems to be Joab to a T. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, for him to be like, mm, maybe we shouldn't do this, <laughs> Mr. King David President, you know, it just seems like, huh. Okay, like there must something about this is demonstrably wrong, like for Joab to be <laughs> resisting it. So I think that in terms of why the census was a sin, what was David's motivation? What was he doing? I think there's a couple, and and these things are not mutually exclusive, so it could be an interlocking thing. But I think that it could be a you know, especially since it's placed towards the end of David's life. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really the last, besides making at least in Samuel Kings, uh, besides kind of being manipulated to mm-hmm. to very directly say that Solomon is king is kind of the last thing David does. And so I think in some ways it's a it could be like a prideful, you know, look how big my army is. Let's see how, you know, how big I've managed to kind of build up the military state. Uh, I think that there could be like I mean the fact that in some ways that they have a a uh, well it's not necessarily a standing army. They're just counting how many men you know, they could, that could be called on to fight, you know? So it's like, all right, well, why is David asking that question? And again, the whole pride, pride thing, it could also be like a lack of trust that, you know, if something bad were to happen, you know, if another Egypt or, or some other country, you know, comes knocking, do we have enough men, you know, could we call up enough force to repel them, you know? Um, Or it could, I think it could even be, and I think Chronicles actually in some ways might, might tip its hand a bit more towards this reading that, you know, if I want to invade some more countries, you know, what kind of resources do I have yeah. to, to, uh, to make that happen? And so I think that any of those, all of those, you know, I think all, a lot of that is happening in David's heart and mind. And, and so it's, uh, it's sinful. It's a sinful census. Yeah. This is actually one of the rare, uh, Satan references we get also yeah. um, in the Old Testament. And so we, in the book of Chronicles, find out that the evil one has um, stirred up his heart to do this. And what do you think is the significance of that, of this being one of the few times that that, that character is invoked? Well, you know, and especially when in the, the Samuel passage, it's Yahweh himself who stirs David up to do this and, and, uh, I think this is one of the this is one of the most well known divergences between Samuel and Chronicles. You know, and I think that it's one of those things that sometimes people point to and they're like, ah, you see, the Bible contradicts itself. It's like, well, no, you know, if you think <laughs> about it for any longer, you know, than thirty seconds, I think it it. Uh, and again, knowing what Samuel and Chronicles are are doing and kind of their different aims. You know, I think that Samuel, which is the earlier account, Samuel is 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 pointing towards this actually being a almost like a punishment being inflicted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still counted as sin against David, uh, and then of course we have to that might that might bring in more diff, diff, or different difficulties of well, but can God tempt us to sin? It's like no, but can He test us, and can we fail that test? Absolutely, you know. So I think that that's. That's uh, potentially what Samuel is, is wanting us to see or to portray. Whereas Chronicles, again, more where do we go from here? You know, testament to God's faithfulness looks at it and says, okay, 
you know, this was the work of, and I'll, I'll get back to your original question. This is the work of the evil one. And so we see here that Yahweh's certainly his justice, but also his mercy in listening to David and, and ending it, you know, uh, not just anywhere, but it turns out as Chronicles tells us on the spot, you know, where Solomon will build the temple, which is also where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. And so it's just kind of like this, what, <laughs> you know, this, this, uh, very momentous, very portentous threshing floor uh, where where uh, Yahweh hears his people, you know, mm-hmm. in mercy and grace and, and offers forgiveness and healing. And so that's all very significant. Um, and so obviously Samuel and Chronicles are doing two very different things, you know, with this same story. And again, as we talked about before, it's not that one is more true than the other, right? Reality is complicated. You know, God plays three-dimensional chess, you know, and so... Uh, not that he's being manipulative or anything else, but just that multiple, multiple things can be happening. And, and we can we can look at both of those things, these accounts at the same time to kind of get a a, uh, a a full picture of, quote unquote, what happened. Why Chronicles assigns it specifically to Satan. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I think there's there's potentially a couple of reasons. And depending on our our kind of theological uh, flavoring, we can kind of pick, you know, pick which scoops of what we want to put, you know, in the bowl of our interpretation. Hmm. I think that there might have actually, you know, so it's later. Chronicles is later. Honestly, I mean, there may have been some uneasiness with the earlier story in Samuel of just saying it was Yahweh. You know, it's like, well, you know, so they 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 want to maybe assign the blame to Satan instead. You know, we know that just generally speaking in Jewish and Jewish culture and society, as we get closer to the time of Jesus, there is a more and more pronounced interest in Satan and, and demons and angelic spirits. And you just see it. You kind of just see a rising tide of it in the literature outside of the Bible. And even, and again, in within the Bible itself, right? Chronicles is later. And so there's Satan, you know, the, the later prophets like Zechariah, you know, talk about Satan, you know, so it's, there's just this, uh, and of course, then you get to the new Testament and he's all over the place. Um, and so I think that might be a, like a historical literary hmm. way of thinking about that. It's just that it seems like, and, and, you know, and you can think about that. There's many ways to think about that of like, well, why, you know, and uh, I think that certainly the experience of exile and being uh, uh, in the mix of pagan religion, you know, and just the things that they saw, I think maybe put them in more direct mind of, the reality of, of evil spiritual beings mm-hmm. and um, Daniel, you know, when we get to Daniel, I mean, that obviously is something that, that Daniel saw and grappled with and just understanding not just that there are territorial gods, you know, that rule over other peoples, but that there are angelic spirits, both good and evil, that are part of the maelstrom of human history. Um, and so I think that this post, the post-exile audience, the post-exile writers looking back on the events of David's reign, I think, can see that, you know, certainly Yahweh's involved. He's he's not uninvolved in almost anything, you know, but that what Yahweh brought to David as a test, the evil one instigated as a as a sin. And I, I mean, it's an it's a it's a Adam and Eve, I think, situation in some ways all over again. That the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given as by the Lord as a good test to teach, I mean, all sorts of things, you know, but I think with the goal being wisdom in the end anyway, whereas the serpent uh, 
kind of came in and tilted the scale, you know, or, or <laughs> sure. offered the the uh, the humans a cheat, you know, and they took that. And so the mm-hmm. whole test was corrupted because it wasn't a real test anymore because they, they cheated. And so I think that in some ways, you know, that, that that's that's happening with David again, that that what was presented as a test for him to refuse the census or for him to, you know, not need it. Because again, why, why is David asking how many fighting men do we have? Um, it would have been his, would have been a success, you know, so it's Yahweh is almost setting him up or trying to give him something, a success at the end of his reign. But instead David, David, uh, David failed, flips it over and, mm-hmm. and fails one last time. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, in that failure, Yahweh's goodness and grace, you know, in his willingness to listen to his people's prayers is demonstrated. Sure. So it's not a hopeless failure. Yeah. I think another perspective on this, and we see this happen at other times in the David story. Um, So David's first interaction with Saul's court um, happens because Yahweh sends a unclean spirit Mm -hmm. to... um, to go and torment Saul, right? Mm-hmm. And so we see that Yahweh is capable of and and does employ um, the minions of the enemy or the enemy himself sometimes to do his bidding. And that is, I think, a proclamation of Yahweh's sovereignty, um, but also just, I think, the potential of understanding when Yahweh is acting, he often acts through agents, and sometimes there's an agent that is best fitting for the action Yahweh once once done that is distasteful to us, but Yahweh is still willing to to work that way. We see the same thing later in Habakkuk when Yahweh says, you know, I'm going to judge my people with this other terrible people. And that, that rankles us a little bit, but um, that is something that Yahweh does. Everyone and everything belongs to him and he can use them if he wishes. I mean, I think that that is, again, a way into understanding, you know, Jesus's death of like, mm-hmm. I think the enemy was very active in that. Yeah. You know, I think the Gospels oh, yeah. very much want us to see, you know, how the enemy was active in that. I mean, he, he possessed Judas, right? Judas goes out into the dark and then the devil enters into him, you know, and so it was very much in the enemy's interest for Jesus to die. He, so the enemy thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and of course, again, it's all it's all kind of turned inside out, you know, uh, in that in that situation when when the Lord redeems all that, the trickery and the scheming and the betrayal. But absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I've got I've got uh, just a couple more questions here. It's kind of interesting also noticing here at the end of the, the David story with Solomon and um, Adoniah, um, there's this. This retelling of the Jacob and Esau story that's mm. sort of happening. You know, we have Rebecca, the mother, um, going and getting involved. Then we have the younger supplanting the older uh, brother for for the primary place. It's hard not to read that into the the Solomon story. But there's this interesting detail in the, the Solomon story early on, I see, that I don't think we see outside of it, where twice people run to the horns of the altar and mm-hmm. hold on to them and just almost like it's base in a game of tag, you know, they refuse to leave until they have a promise of safety. What What's happening with that? Why would a person run and grab the horns of the altar and expect that that be a guarantee of safety? 
you know, I think that it's it's sacred space, and so no one is to be killed in it. And so I think it's just as simple as that. But they're expecting that people will not kill them if <laughs> they're in within the uh, the precincts of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we supposed to make of Joab? What a complicated character. Yeah, Joab. Joab again. You know, th- these stories, these early stories, are just. And this is true for the entire royal history, really, but I think especially early, that a lot of these early figures are just so... The Bible does so much with so little. Uh (laughs) You know, just like that it's so sparse in some ways Mm -hmm. in its descriptions, certainly in its descriptions. I mean, we hardly know what any of them look like. You know, every now and then we're given a physical, you know... David was ready, you know, handsome somehow, you know, but that's it. Uh, Leah had weak eyes, whatever that means, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Jacob walked with a limp. Um, so we, but just, yeah, it's just so spare with its with its details and its descriptions. And yet Joab is painted, you know, as a real person. I mean, he reads like it, you know, and not, not that, yeah, I think you know what I mean by that. Of like, there is a depth of character there, you know, that... That Joab seems to be kind of the man that David relied on to do what needed to be done. Uh, the census, obviously, Joab resisted and didn't want to do. You know, we, we actually didn't talk about the numbers in the census. You know, I, I part of me wonders because and, and ancient Israel did not field a million man army. Like, no, it just of course didn't. not. The United States had 1.3 million people in active service in 2022. <laughs> and so right. ancient Israel did not have that many fighting men. Like, they just didn't. And there's there's many things that could be happening. Honestly, part of me wonders if, if Joab was lying. Like, if it was artificially inflated. You know, I think there's also some significance because the Persian army at the time mm-hmm. fielded a million men. And so I think that... And Chronicles is being written under the the shadow of the Persian Empire, and so I think that there might be a connection there that that David is being uh, kind of viewed in like an in a bad kind of imperialistic like he wants to know how many people he's got so he can go conquer other countries. Anyway, so yeah, I, I would just say that Joab is is a complex character who, you know, I like someone like anybody he's not fully good or fully evil like he's not he's not a bad guy you know i think his intentions are often good you know i think it makes sense why he threw in his lot with adonijah he's the firstborn so like it it would make sense that he would be the king uh but again david does the same thing that so many of the patriarchs did and that he favors not the firstborn son um now again, kings kings seems to really want to show us how Nathan and Bathsheba and Abiathar like maneuvered for uh-huh. that to happen. Like poor doddering senile David, <laughs> <laughs> who can't even keep himself warm anymore. Uh-huh. Kings wants us to know that. Like it's worth including that detail that he's so weak and powerless now. He's just this cold little toad. You know that they have to hire a woman to to. Uh, just sit there and hug him to keep him warm. And, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, anyway, all that to say, I think that, that, yeah, Joab Joab was not trying to do wickedness. I think he just is, you know, there's a, there's a book that I read a few years ago. I think it's called The Beginning of Politics. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's about, it kind of goes through some of these stories. And I really appreciate it because... 
you know, they make the point, not that there weren't politicians or politics before these things happening, but that, that the stories of David are in world history, really the first stories that we can read as showing us the corruption of power uh, and showing us the, Mm. that everyone around the king is in danger by virtue of being around the king. Yeah. Like that, that human power is inherently violent and inherently dangerous because people die. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's certainly, you know, and, and so I think that it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a sad thing. It's sad because we look on our own, you know, I think our own huh. day and age and just like, man, like we, we live in a very different context. You know, generally speaking, the people around the president are safe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not from hmm. legal trouble, but not, they're not, their lives are not at risk because they displease him, you know, and, 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 and whatever else. Of course, we may, we, we, God help us, hopefully you're not entering a time in our nation's history where <laughs> if you back the wrong one, you know, you're inviting violence or, or uh, violent reprisals. Um, but I think that, honestly, we should sit back as Americans and be grateful to God that we have lived in a country and in a time where violence has not been the rule in mm-hmm. our politics. Because, again, the Bible is telling us that it is inherently dangerous. It yeah. is inherently violent. You know, uh, uh, and that we need, I mean, we need a good king. I mean, that's it, in many ways, I mean, certainly Samuel King's, it's it's the same through line as judges of like, yes, we need a king, but he needs to be a good king. Mm-hmm. And David was a pretty good king, but he needs to be even better than David was. Yeah. You know, Solomon is called, his name means peace. I mean, it's related to Shalom. And yet in Kings, his reign is bathed in it's baptized in blood like mm-hmm. that is how his reign begins is is in a not quite a coup necessarily but a uh, a very brief little civil war that didn't go up much further than Jerusalem you know yeah. well it's interesting too you know you mentioned that being close to the king um, invites violence yeah and when we talk about a good king and we see in the the story of Jesus those that were close to him, we're not immune from violence either, but it is fundamentally <laughs> but different. it wasn't coming from Jesus. <laughs> no, it wasn't coming from Jesus. And it also wasn't because they were trying to assert their will over right. the workings of the kingdom. They were surrendering their will right. to the, the workings of the kingdom. And the world then did violence upon them, right? And, right. and that, is, that inversion of politics is, is a picture of, I think, we're supposed to have. I don't think I've looked at these stories in quite that way with that specific contrast before, but that's I I imagine that the early Jews would have. Last question. Well, and I think it just also points to what a stunning reversal of messianic and Davidic royal expectations that Jesus really was. Yeah. Because again, these are all the stories sitting in their background, including in his brain. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that he just did not. He just he just did not conduct and he does not conduct his kingdom in that way, yeah. you know, and it's it's a true that Jesus's enthronement was being crucified, you know, like mm-hmm. it is a the more you think about it, the more amazing. I mean, the, just the I mean, the words fail, I feel like, yeah. the, you know, the longer you think about it. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. <laughs> Speaking of Benaya, I mean, what a character that I wish we had. <laughs> Just like... <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, and he's not even Israelite, right? Isn't he mm-hmm. a, a Pelophite or whatever? Something, yeah. You know, he's just like, all right. I mean, not he's not a hitman, but like... <laughs> <laughs> that uh-huh. he's just going to go around and make sure that Solomon doesn't hit any speed bumps. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.